Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, we are back today for our second sermon in this series in the letter of James. We're just going to read the first 12 verses. I'm mostly going to be talking today about verses 2, 3, and 4. But we'll read a few verses of context here. Today's text is on page 10, I think, in your bulletin. If you don't have your Bible. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also... Will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. We pray now, Lord, that you will work on us in a very powerful way as we receive this text and apply it in our lives. In Jesus we ask. Amen. So last week we met a first century pastor named James. And on the original Palm Sunday that we're celebrating today, on that first Palm Sunday, James was not a pastor. James was the brother of a maverick carpenter-turned-rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. And he has been watching, no doubt with some disturbance, his brother's disruptive ministry in the land of Israel. He's heard him teach the Torah in new and very unsettling ways, and he's watched that erupt into a conflict with the leaders of the, relig- of the, of the Jewish nation, as you know, and, and of course that gets worse and worse until eventually they execute him. And I have to think that as a zealous Jew, as a Jew who was really concerned for the integrity of Torah, you know, obedience to the law of Moses, deeply believed in the God of Israel, James must have watched his brother's execution with some pretty torn feelings. You know, he, he would want the way of God to be vindicated against troublers, but his brother was the troubler, and he must have had horror in watching his brother die in the most awful way imaginable. Eventually, though, he's visited by the resurrected Jesus. Just a few days after the crucifixion, Jesus is raised, and he visits James. He, He shows up and has a talk with his brother, and now James knows that my brother is the Son of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And then James is in the city of Jerusalem when about a month and a half later, about a month and a half after the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus, who by now has ascended, he's gone back to the Father in heaven to rule and reign at the Father's right hand. Now Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on the church. And James would have got one of those cool tongues of fire that day. He received the Holy Spirit from his ascended Lord and Savior and brother Jesus. And he began then to take a leadership role in that early church over those next few months As the church really kind of took off, it's growing by thousands. And you'll remember in the early chapters of Acts, that growth results in serious clashes 
of the early church with the very rulers who killed Jesus. And then a little while later, just a few weeks later, the first martyr is killed, a man named Stephen. Stands up to the Jewish council, they call it the Sanhedrin, and they stone him to death. And now the followers of the Jesus way find themselves very suddenly and unexpectedly on the run from the authorities. And they scatter out of Jerusalem. And this is God's plan, but it's, it's, it's hard. They enter into a decade of really severe displacement. You know, you read this in the news sometimes, about people that are just sort of like thrown out of their homes and they don't really ever go back to their homes. And this is a time of great uncertainty for them. It's a, there's a lot of suffering. I mean, there are some early encouragements, you'll remember. I mean, this firebrand Saul, you know, the, the young Jewish zealot who's just a, he has it in for the Christians. He's a Christian killer. He's converted. Jesus just knocks him off his donkey and shows Saul what he showed James, which is, I am the Messiah. That's encouraging, but it's still very bad for, the, for these followers of Jesus, especially in Jerusalem. You've got to be super careful, super wary, and that's where James begins to minister. Eventually, sometime later, even King Herod gets in on the act as another wave of deadly persecution, and that pleases the Jews. And to make it all worse, you know, as if things couldn't get harder, there's this famine. People don't even have enough food to eat. And in all of that, James is at the center of caring for the little flock there in Jerusalem and caring for the flock that's been scattered abroad. And he writes, you notice in verse 1, to the dispersion, the scattered Jesus people, fully knowing their situation. He knows exactly the hardships they're facing. But what is stunning, you'll remember from last week, what's stunning is how he reads that situation because he says these words. They, they kind of ro- you know, roll off for us today. But just imagine hearing these. He says, you are the 12 tribes. I mean, that is a heavy thing to say to a Jew. He's basically writing to these scattered, marginalized, persecuted, you know, nobodies. They're they're just, they got no social clout at all, no cultural influence at all. And he writes to them and he basically says, you know that whole thing God promised to Abraham? That he was going to reverse the ruin of Adam? You know, Adam just got us in all this mess called sin and death and, you know, we're under this heel of the serpent and just that whole mess in Genesis. God said to Abraham, I'm going to reverse all of that horror of sin and death through your family. Well, guess what? That's fulfilled in you people. You're it. All that thing God has been doing in the Abraham family for all these centuries, you're the fulfillment of it. You are, he says, the first fruits of the new creation. You're the nucleus of this whole new thing God is doing through the Messiah that he promised to Abraham. Now, it's not easy you know, that, I'm sure that was kind of a, a lot to take in and very encouraging in a way, but this is not easy because these 12 tribes, the, the new Israel God is building, they're still living in what Jesus called the world. And I, I mentioned last week, people are confused about what the world is. Jesus talked about the world, and Jesus, when he talked about the world, was talking about this alliance of rulers and religion that opposed him. There was this whole system of powers and values in his day, you know, represented by Herod and Pilate and the the Jewish rulers, that whole system of power and system of values, it hated him. And he told the disciples, even the night of his crucifixion, he said, you know, the world hates me and it's going to hate you. And it, it does. I mean, they're living this now. And James is writing to them because they're going to need to resist the allure of the world. It'd be nice to go back to just being a plain old Jew, (laughs) You know, in, 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 the, in the favor of the Sanhedrin, you could just like, you know, chill out and go back home and relax. 
this following Jesus thing, you know, it makes you poor. It makes you, you end up, you know, being an outcast, an outlaw. You, you look at all the wealth and the status and the, you know, the strength of Rome and the, the Jews who are aligned with Rome. It would have been very easy to go back. But James wants them to know, as Jesus told them, that whole alliance, that whole world is going to be replaced by this new creation. In fact, the kingdom of Messiah is already spreading throughout Caesar's empire. You know how we know that? Because you're scattered. <laughs> God has just got his Jesus people spreading throughout the empire, and it's going to replace this whole system. And so what he's calling them to in this letter is, I want you, my dear suffering readers, I want you to have integrity in your identity. You're God's Israel. This whole thing is about to fall down. Herod's temple and all that goes with it, that's about to be destroyed. You're the real thing. You're the true Israel. That's your identity. I want you to have integrity in that. I want you to become fully what you are in Jesus. And today I want to just show you in verses 2 through 4, very quickly, I want to just show you what's the road to that integrity, the road to becoming fully what you are, the road to becoming the fullness of God's new Israel. That road runs through something that every faithful Christian experiences. You guys know exactly what this is about even today. And that road runs through what, we, what James calls here various kinds of trials. And what I want to talk about just for a few minutes here is I want to talk to you about the destination, where God is taking us. So, you know, like I said last week, we're not the first fruits. We're 21st century fruits, right? We're, we're not the stump of a faithful Israel. We're the Gentile branches that are grafted in. But we're part of this thing, this new creation God is doing all these years later. And we're supposed to be the Israel of God, and that's, I want to show you what the destination is as we grow toward that, and then I want to talk a little bit about the road, how we get there. But let's start, start with the destination, and look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. We're told various trials are going to come. The testing of your faith is going to produce steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Now, here's the destination, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, a hard journey, you, you guys have ever taken a really hard journey, you know it makes a lot more sense to stick with it if you know where you're going. And James says in verse 3, he says, I want you, you know, count, to count it joy when you suffer because you know. You know where this is going. You know what God has in mind at the end of this road. Well, what is it? Where are all these trials taking us? Now, in order to kind of see how James develops this, I want to just step back for a minute and think together about the basic sequence of God's grace in our life, what we call the gospel. There's a, there's a very basic sequence, and, and we've talked about this many times. The sequence is that God accepts you, and he adopts you, and he loves you for Jesus' sake while you're still a sinner. And then he starts changing you. So you're accepted before God changes you. You are you get an identity as God's children, loved by him. You get that identity before you have any integrity, before you look anything like a child of God, before you live in any way like, you know, a saint. But God makes you a saint while you're still a sinner. And then he starts saintifying you. <laughs> he starts, you know, teaching you how to learn, how to walk and how to grow as the people you now actually are. This is what you are. Now he teaches you to live like what you are. And, and the Bible calls that sanctification, or we, uh, the, the word is sanctification. God starts making a saint out of you because he's already made a saint out of you. He's accepted you. He's made you holy. He's made you one of his. And now that he begins making you what you actually are. And, I, you know, I was thinking about this this week. God really must care about this because the thing that drives me a little bit crazy about this sequence 
is that God could just do it instantaneously. And I don't really, I've, to, this, to this day, I, I, James helps me a little bit, but I, I still struggle with this sometimes. Like, God, you know, you could have, like, taken Ben Miller, and when you saved me, when you made me your child, you could have just made me, like, a perfect child of God. God could just snap his fingers, and I could be, like, completely obedient, completely righteous, completely in every way, conformed to what, you know, I'm supposed to be. And some of you are like, man, yeah, you know, why didn't God do that? Because we wouldn't have to live with this Ben who's in process. What a pain. God must really care about this process. He could just make you his child and you'd be like, and perfectly change your character, and he doesn't. There's this process of growing into what you are, and, and God doesn't make this disappear, this process, and it's crazy. He doesn't, this isn't just a process for individuals. It's a process for the whole body of Christ. You know, we are sanctified together, and in fact, one day, the entire creation, God tells us, is gonna be full of the holiness and glory of God, and a lot of people actually think about this process, the way, you know, whether it's on the world scene or individually, they think that you're just going to kind of muddle along and then there's going to be this cataclysmic thing like I die and I'm perfect. Or, you know, on the cosmic scene, Jesus comes back and it's all perfect. There, there's very little sense of this is a process. Between now and my death, God accepts me to make serious progress in saintliness. And between now and the second coming of Jesus, God expects this world to be full of his glory. It is a process. And God really cares about the process. Now, here's the thing. Let's go back to the beginning. You receive grace. God loves you. He accepts you. He forgives you. And you're now his child. That's your identity. How do you receive that? You don't pay for that. You don't earn that. That's not a process. That's a gift. And you receive that gift. The Bible says you receive it by faith alone. What that means is you just say, okay, that's faith. Okay, Lord. You say my sins are forgiven, that Jesus died for them, that he, he is the righteousness that I'm not, and so I just receive the fact that I'm yours, I, that you, you get that identity, and, and you just receive it by faith alone. But you'll notice, James says, God wants that faith, that just, yes, Lord, amen, Lord, <laughs> I accept that, Lord. God wants that faith, he says, to grow into, what's the last word in verse 3? The testing of your faith is going to produce what? God wants your faith to grow into steadfastness. See, God is not interested in like 10-minute faith or 10-year faith. God is interested in faith that is getting stronger and stronger and stronger and steadier and more sturdy and more lively over time. And then James says something just crazy in verse 4. He says, as your faith in God, your confidence in God, you are just settled in him. You know he is the truth. You know Jesus is the way. You know God's plan is going to happen, and you're just at rest in that. The more that grows and becomes steadfast, he says, you are eventually going to become, what's the language? Perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. That's the destination. Not because Pastor Ben says so, because God says so. God's plan for you, dear saint, sitting in your pew, listening out there wherever you are, is that you through the testing of your faith and the growing steadfastness of your faith, will become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the destination. Now, what on earth does it mean you're going to become perfect and complete? I just want to sort of dwell here for a moment and think about that word perfect. The Greek word for perfect is teleos. Now, those of you who, there's, there's at least like one Greek word you ought to know, and it's the Greek word telos. And it, this is a word that's derived from telos, teleos, so perfect, telos, the, the little uh, noun in Greek, telos, it basically refers to 
kind of the end or the goal toward which something is becoming. Like, I like to think of the acorn. I often use this illustration. The telos of an acorn is to be an oak tree. If you've got an acorn that after 20 years is still an acorn, your acorn has not reached its telos. There's, God made a thing for something, and that for, that it's for, is its telos. And so, teleos, the idea here is not sinlessness. A human being who is arriving at this teleos, this state of being teleos or perfect, it's not so much sinlessness. The idea would better be wholeness. The Old Testament talks about, with my whole heart, I've sought you. It's the idea of an entire human being having become, reached a human who's reached full potential. God's, God's, the idea here is that the more your faith in God matures, the more it grows and becomes stronger and livelier, the more all of you matures. Like you just start to change and begin to reach your full potential from the inside out. As faith rules your heart, like everything starts to come together in your life, ordered toward God. Uh, maybe, a, maybe a way to think about this word perfect. You guys ever heard like a perfect game? Like, you know, somebody pitches a perfect game in baseball? Or you'll sometimes hear in sports, they'll talk about someone showed up and like this was a total performance. Like this team just showed up today and they, they're a game. This was a total performance. Or a, this was like a, a perfect game. And what are, what, it's interesting to think about what that, that means. It's not that there's absolutely no flaws in the game. The idea is that it was all kind of clicking. We reached full potential. And it's very interesting here what James is, is kind of doing. If you think about athletes, if they're going to show up and have a total performance under game conditions, <laughs> you know, you're going to show up on game day and you're going to pull a perfect game and the whole team is working and it, it just all clicks. We reach full potential in playing. If you're going to reach that like, perfection, so-called, under game conditions, you have to be really dialed into your coaches. You've got to really know what your coaches are after, and you've got to be dialed into your coaches and what they're after, not just on game day. There's a lot of process that leads up to that moment when this team together pulled off the perfect game. They, they had a total performance. You can, if you ever see that happen, you know there are months, maybe years, of these players, and they're checking the sidelines. They're looking. To, I love watching players like in football. They're always looking to the sidelines or, or you know, other sports. They're, they're checking out. They're dialed into the coach. What's he doing? What's the plan? Where are we going? How, you know, and they're just constantly checking in. Why? Because they trust the coach. They trust the coach. Those coaches over there on the sideline, they know what we can be. I mean, you take a bunch of, you know, freshmen in college and expect them to go out on a football field and pull off like the perfect game. That's never going to happen. Th those players have come to realize those coaches have the plan. They know what this could actually look like. And so we're listening because they can help us get there. Yeah, we are, we're the players, but they know how this can all come together and be what it's supposed to be. And so they're dialed into the sidelines. That's the heart of a, of a player to achieve this kind of perfect game. And that, that, that trust in the coaches produces a real focus in training and obedience to the coaches. You, you don't, if you have good players that understand what's going on, like the coaches are getting us ready to play like at top level, they're not standing out on the field whining every time the coach gives them instructions. They don't see the authority of the coach as something that's crippling them. The authority of the coach is unleashing our potential. If these guys know what it takes to be that championship team, then we need to be listening to them and focused on their directions and obedient and, and give it our all because that's how, this, that's how that 
perfect game comes about. And, and, and it will unleash our potential. And that's what God, James is saying here to these, these readers is God, is he's got you in training. Because he wants, this, he wants this perfect game. He wants you to be out there at your full potential. That was God's plan for Israel. Think about God's plan for Israel. Man, they just made a hash of it, didn't they? God's plan for Israel was, in one sense, very simple. God wanted Israel to be fully restored humanity. I mean, that's really what the Torah is about. It's a, it's a training manual for, for a team to bring it to championship-level play. It is a training manual to get human beings fully restored at 100%, so in love with God, so, in, so like loving toward their neighbor. And then God adds to the Torah of Moses, you know, all the wisdom of the kings to, to, to bring humanity to its full potential. And it, what was supposed to happen in Israel, in the original 12 tribes, they were to learn to fear God, to have Abraham's trust and confidence in God. And the more they feared the Lord, the more they would grow into a wholehearted love for him. They wouldn't be like, you know, kind of God, kind of Baal, kind of God, kind of Moloch. No, it was like God. Yahweh, the true and living God, the maker of heaven and earth. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and we're going to serve him in the world. We love him. We are his friends, like Abraham. And it would, there would be wholehearted love, not just for God, but for their neighbor. They'd become a people who, because they're so confident in God's provision, so at peace in God's love, so aware of God's generosity, they'd become a people of justice and mercy and open-handed generosity to the people around them. They'd care for the poor. They'd care for the stranger. And they wouldn't just be friends of God and wonderful neighbors. They would, they would grow into skillful dominion over his world. They'd cultivate fields and build cities and build civilizations and, you know, teach wisdom to kings. It was just going to, this was it. Fully restored humanity. You know, that's never changed. I know you sit here today like the people used to sit when Moses was teaching Torah. And I, I know this seems like, it just sounds crazy. This is still the plan. God's plan is that the, today, 21st century fruits, long after this, these readers, the stronger and the livelier your faith in God grows, the more you are just sure of your king, so excited about his kingdom, so sure his kingdom is going to fill the earth, the more your faith grows stronger and stronger and more, more alive and more fervent, the more you'll find that in all, throughout your life, all of your loves all of your desires, all of your motivations, all of your relationships. It's like this tractor beam of God is just going to pull all this into orbit. You're not going to be wandering after this and that. Everything's going to be drawn into orbit, fixed on God. You know, the psalmist says, my heart is fixed. That's wholeheartedness. I hate the work of those who fall away, he says. It shall not cling to me. That's wholeheartedness. That's what faith in God does. It just pulls everything in your life toward God. That's the destination. Wholeheartedness. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I mean, the reality is just God, God, God actually expects more of you than you do. That's the thing that I've just been, just more and more as I watch Christians, I realize most of us expect to live pretty mediocre lives and then die and then we're perfect. Most of us expect that our sins that have beaten us a thousand times are going to keep beating us. Most of us expect we are not going to change. Most of us let ourselves off the hook that actually great exploits for God are just not in our resume, now or later. That we're going to muddle along, where our character is going to be weak, our faith is going to be, you know, kind of at a simmer, 
our love is going to be, you know, kind of, we're not really going to look that dramatically different from kind of everyday people all around us. You know, make, God is not going to make a dramatic difference in our lives. That's what we expect. We really do. And God just has this whole other thing. And he's after it. And here's how he's after it. There's the destination. But how does he do it? How does he grow our faith? How does he strengthen our faith? How does he make our faith steadfast? How does he move us along toward that destination of being whole, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing? What's the road? How does God get us there? Well, that's verse 3, isn't it? And the answer is various trials. (sighs) That's the destination. God says so. You, You don't get any choice. That's where he's taking you. And so what he does to get you there is he just puts you in situation after situation after situation after situation where you basically have no choice but to step out on God. Where he's really truly all you got. If he is not who he says he is, if his promises are lies, you're in big trouble. And you just have to step out on God and throw yourself on him. And he puts you again and again in situations where you kind of can't avoid that. And the Jewish readers would have thought, is, you know, they're Jewish readers reading this. They would have thought about testing throughout their history. They would have thought of Abraham give me your son, Abraham. They would have thought about the wilderness. No food. Guess what? Hundreds of thousands of people, no food. Everybody chill. They'd have thought about no water. They'd have thought about enemies coming after God's people, more powerful than they. They would have thought about Genesis 3. They'd have thought about the fact that there's a fruit I can't have because God says so. See, God's reversing Genesis 3 in us. That's what he's after. That's what the book of James is basically about. God, how God in his true Israel is reversing Genesis 3. And how are you and I going to live differently differently from Adam? How are we going to learn to live and to rule in God's new Eden, this new worldwide temple he's building? How are we going to live and rule here, not like Adam, but like Jesus, if God doesn't test and train our faith? What was Adam's problem? He didn't believe God. He actually believed the serpent's lie that there was God was holding out on him, that, that obedience to God was, gonna, was actually going to ruin his life. And the Jews would have thought of all of this as they read, God is testing you. He is trying you. And you got to think about their situation. You know, it's great to know you're the 12 tribes. Great to know God is going to do this glorious thing of, in you creating the true Israel, in you creating restored humanity. Yay, sign me up. And guess, how, guess what that looks like every day? 40 years of being hunted by the old generation that doesn't believe in the promised land, doesn't believe in the new Joshua. 40 years waiting around while they try to kill you until they're all dead. Just like, you know, Caleb and his generation back in the Old Testament. You've got to wait 40 years from the time Jesus went back to the Father to the destruction of Jerusalem. And this 40 years is a time of misery. You're on the run. You're hated by the political authorities. You're hated by the religious authorities. You don't, you've lost your homes. Some of you have lost family members. I mean, it's just a dark, hard, difficult time. That's the wilderness. That's where God is testing you. That's where you get to step out on him because he's all you've got. Jesus is the way. And if getting, following that way means we get killed in the way, then so be it. That's, that's the testing. That's what t- tries your faith. And how about today? That was, the, that was the testing for the first fruits, a really hard time. How about for 21st century fruits? You know, the reality is for all of us, and, and again, you, you will immediately know what I'm talking about if you're faithful to the Lord. God is stressing your faith. 
Oh, he is. God is stressing your faith every day. He's after it. Will you pray? God will man, he'll make you pray. I watch comfortable Christians, and all of a sudden, God just has them on their face. Now you're praying. You won't pray, God will make you pray. He will test you until the only thing you've got is prayer. Will you wrestle with God? Will you argue with him? Will you take up his promise and say, Lord, you have spoken? Will you wrestle like Jacob? God, I will not let go of you until you bless me because you promised me your blessing. He'll put you in a place where that's all you can do. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? You know what trust looks like? Peace. Trust looks like quiet. Trust looks like I am well, despite the circumstances. God will put you in a place where you... you you know, what are you going to do? Who are you going to trust if you can't trust God? I, this, I ask myself this over and over. Ben, you know, I, I'm not settled under God's rule over my life. Then under whose rule would I be settled? I actually think I'm insane enough to think that if God would hand me the reins, things would be better. Will you trust? God is stressing your faith. Will you wait? Wow, that's the thing I don't want to do. Thank you very much. Will you wait? Will you hope? You know, not sit there and grind your teeth and snarl and growl and, God, why? No, will you hope? <laughs> will you not get cynical? Because, God, will you rejoice? Will you obey? God is stressing your faith. Will you venture? Will you do something crazy because you believe in the living God? God is stressing your faith. And I want you to think about as God just turns up the fire under your faith again and again, makes you uncomfortable, again and again, makes you, makes you, brings pain, brings stress, brings, you know, and you just, it's like, man, Lord, let, let up. What's it doing? Think of what it gives you. Think about what this produces. Two things very quickly. It, it produces over time, and you can watch this in people's lives. It produces experience with God. You know, I think I, I, think I know God. I stand up here and I talk to you every week and I think I trust God. I think I love God. You do too. You sit there and you know, you, you all think you're, you, you think you're, you think you're pretty dialed into God. You think you depend on him? Yeah, I trust the Lord, Pastor Miller. I mean, I, you know, he's my rock. He's my fortress. When the chips are down, I really do turn to him. You know, you think you're devoted to him. You think you love God. You think your heart is sold out to him and his kingdom and his priorities, his values, his power, his wisdom, his thing he's doing in the world. I'm going to knock my... You think this is all like just burning inside of you? You think God has your full attention? He has my full attention. I'm not distracted. You think your life is fully oriented to him? So do I. And then it's day one of spring training. I'm like, you know what, God? I think maybe you give me an armchair and a 72-inch plasma TV and a remote and a Coke, and I'm going to watch spring training. Because I'm out there, and God's got me doing push-ups in the mud, and I'm ready to... I can't, I'm just dying. I can't breathe. My legs are burning. God is stressing my faith. I like to watch spring training. But you know what? Now I need a strength that's deeper than my willpower. Now I need a view of reality that is bigger than my impoverished little dreams. Now I need a hope that is stronger than my childish feelings. That's what I need. I need God. I need God's presence with me. Like this week, I need God. I need his promises to be true. 
I need his provisions to be real. I need the Lord. And as you wrestle in those moments for God's blessing, and God just keeps putting the screws to you until you know him in experience. This isn't just God talk. It's like life, man. And as you wrestle with him in that and you have experience of God, the second thing you find is it begins to give you enlargement of soul. You start to get bigger. God just uses your suffering, my suffering, to break our souls open to vastly greater treasures than we naturally want. I watch God in my life. I watch God in the lives of people I love. Watch what he's doing with suffering. Not just to give experience of God, but in that enlargement of soul. You know what God sometimes is doing? Sometimes as God puts suffering in your life, he's prying your fingers off some sin. You know, we are, can we just be real for a minute, beloved, and admit we are pretty hell-bent. We want stuff that's just utterly bad for us. The psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. I was prone to wander. And God put some suffering in my life, and he just pried my finger off some sin. You know, the writer of Hebrews says, don't be discouraged, beloved, when you feel the disciplining rod of God on your, on your backside. The Father loves you. He, he is sometimes just like waking you up, like you need to like come awake to where you're going. Where are you going? That's love. That's an enlargement of soul. Sometimes he's shaking us out of our comfort zones. I mean, who wants to lose their home, lose their connections, lose their status, become outlaws? These readers, this was hard. What's God doing? Why are they so uncomfortable? Because they're the first wave of God's mission to the nations. You know what's never going to happen? If they stay in Jerusalem, the nations will not be evangelized. You have a comfortable church, the kingdom's not advancing. And sometimes what God is doing, he's just prying us out of our comfort zones. You know, I just want to sit and I want the TV and the and the armchair. God is prying us out of that. He's prying us out of our self-absorbed little dreams. You know, when you're young, when you're old, you know, we're made to dream, and it's not wrong to dream. We are not made to worship our dreams. Some of you who are young people today, you're going you're to find this out, and it's okay. You're going to find out what it is to have God shatter your dreams, because God doesn't want you to worship those dreams. Good for you that you dream. You should dream. Pursue those dreams, but the moment you say, I must have this, you're worshiping it. And God will sometimes bring suffering to enlarge your soul and help us realize it is verifiably false that the life we would choose for ourselves is our best life. That is a lie. The life Ben Miller wants for himself is not his best life. And God sometimes is just blowing things up inside of me to bring me face to face with that. Sometimes he's prying us out of passivity. Because there is, you know, the Christian who has a kind of distorted trust in the Lord, and they're just always sitting back like, oh, my life, it's so hard, I'm just waiting for God. Maybe God is telling you to do something. Maybe God is shaking you out of that passivity. Stop waiting for magic. Stop, for God's sake, playing the victim. You've had a hard life. You've had a rough road. There is suffering. There is trials. There are, there's affliction in your life. Fine. Stop lying there, complaining and whining and crying If God is saying to you, what are you going to do by faith? What steps are you going to take because you trust me? The Bible says trust in the Lord and do good. And sometimes that's the lesson as God is enlarging our soul. That's the road to give us experience with God, enlargement of soul. And the conclusion, and we're almost done, the conclusion you'll notice in verse 2 is joy. There's joy in the journey. Count it all joy because you know this is what's happening. This is what's happening. Rejoice. If this is what's actually going on, that's the destination. Fully restored humanity as faith grows. That's the road, various trials. If that's what's actually going on, it really 
should change the way that day by day in our heads we narrate our lives. And we do. We tell the story in our head all the time to ourselves, to other people. This is the story of Ben. Do you know, when you think about what's really going on in your life under the hand of God, the harder your story, the more difficulties in your story, the more opportunities you have to point to the hand of God. That's actually, if this is what's actually going on, the harder your life, the more opportunities you have to point to what God is doing. If you doubt that, look at Jesus. You know, I think about this often. Friday night, would you narrate Jesus' story as if Sunday is coming? Really? Friday night, would you tell the story of Jesus? The Messiah is dead. The Messiah is coming back. The Messiah is going to reign. Is that the story? Is that your story in your head about you? Because there is no story of God's faithfulness in all the world that's identical to yours. You have a story of God's faithfulness that nobody else in the history of creation or ever in the future of God's world, nobody will ever have exactly that story. This is your story of God's faithfulness. And so you should enjoy that story. And I don't mean in some weird, happy, clappy way. I mean, you should genuinely enjoy that story. In the hardships of my life, God has formed this trophy of faithfulness. And tell that story to other people when their joy is just running low. And look forward to so much more of this to come, because this is what's going on. The road of testing to steadfast faith, to wholeness and completion lacking nothing. Now, of course, there's more to it. This takes a lot of wisdom, and so next week we're going to start turning a corner and look at how we get the wisdom we lack. But that's for next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reminder that you're at work in all of the mess, and we pray that our hearts will be lightened by this, but more than that, Lord, that we will really grab hold of your promises and your provisions and live for you and grow into the fullness of love for which you made us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.